I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll need a Bible to follow along for the message this week and each week. So these brothers have some Bibles. They'll make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at our passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can keep that Bible as well as our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4. Some of you know the name Charles Colson. He was right-hand man to President Nixon, and he went to jail for his role in the Watergate scandal. During his time in the White House, he was known as Nixon's hatchet man because he would do anything the president asked of him, and it later cost him his freedom. But after his release from prison, Colson became a Christian, and he lived his remaining days in ministry. He started an organization that exists to this day that serves prisoners and their families, an organization called Prison Fellowship. On one occasion, Colson was lecturing on the subject of ethics at a military base in North Carolina. He was addressing 2,000 Marine officers and non-commissioned officers, and he writes this, They sat attentively in starched fatigues and spit-shined boots. But when the question and answer period began, no one stirred until the general, a rugged six foot six officer, turned around and said in a booming voice, there will be questions. And suddenly hands popped up all across the auditorium. These men were trained to obey their commanding officers. But the last question of the evening was this. Which is most important? Loyalty or integrity? And Colson thought about it. And of course, he is one who had learned the hard way, the hard way that loyalty to a president at the sacrifice of integrity could land you in prison. And so he replied, integrity always comes first. But integrity can be a slippery word to define. It's like the story of some theologians who were trying to come up with an accurate definition of that word, so they invited a philosopher into the room. Tell us, they said, what is integrity? The philosopher pondered the question. Integrity, he finally said, is what you are like when nobody else is around. That's a good one. The panel thanked him. And then they ushered in a businessman and asked for his definition. In my world, the businessman said, integrity means a person is as good as his word. And after thanking him, the panel invited a lawyer to join them. What is integrity, they asked. The attorney's eyes cautiously scanned the room. He finally asked, what do you want it to mean? (laughs) Now, integrity has come to mean for us good moral character, honesty. That's because at its root is the Latin word for integer term we use in mathematics. An integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not a piece of a number, but it's complete. It's whole. Our dictionary definition is of, of integrity is the state of being whole, entire, undiminished. And as it relates to one's personal character, it means that their behavior is consistent from one situation to another. That the principles that govern how one acts are applied appropriately in varied circumstances. But we often have a hard time doing this. 
Let's take the issue that is the subject of our passage today, our love for other people. I've heard parents say over the years, I treat my children the same. Well, that's a a good goal, and it's the parents' attempts at bringing integrity to their parenting. But the truth is, love is requiring that we look differently from one child to the next because children are not the same. And their needs, including their needs for correction, are not the same. So how do you love children with integrity? That is, in a way that's consistent in principle, yet applied in a way that's in keeping with that principle. Jeff Fisher was a head coach in the National Football League for 22 years. He took one of those teams to the Super Bowl. I heard him interviewed several years ago. He was asked, do you treat each of your players the same or do you have to treat them differently? His answer was, I thought, a good one. He said, you treat them differently under the same rules. In this way, his coaching had integrity. He had the same principles, the same rules, but they were applied appropriately depending on the person and circumstance. Now today, as we continue in our series in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see the struggle of a very good church in its efforts to apply love to one another appropriately. The issue for the church in Thessalonica was not the existence of their love, but the integrity, the practice of that love, as it is for all of us in different circumstances in life. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that we are here. We're here because of you. We wouldn't want to be here if it were not for you making a difference in our hearts and changing our desires and our allegiances. So we want to be in your presence as we especially are when gathered with your people. We want to fellowship with one another and encourage and and be an encouragement. And Lord, we want to learn of you. We want to hear from your word and then change as needed accordingly. And so Lord, we ask you, We not only thank you, but now we ask you to help us as we open your word, to have open hearts and have attentive minds, and help us to be willing and anxious even to hear what you say and to make changes that help us to bring glory to you, to reflect your character this week better than we were able to do last. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have inserted in your program an outline for the message, and I encourage you to take that out if you don't have that out as yet. And I say, first of all there, that love is characteristic of Christians. Love is characteristic of Christians. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Now, when Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, says, now about, that refers to a matter that's been brought to his attention in some way. He uses that same language in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 12. He says, now for the matters you wrote about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Do we have that on the screen? Is that available? Now, for the matters you wrote about, 
in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, he begins chapter 8 with now about food sacrificed idols. He begins chapter 12 with now about the gifts of the Spirit. And in the case of what was going on in Corinth, he had received a letter from them. That's why he says in verse 7, the, the matters you, you wrote about. In the case of Thessalonica, the information that he had came by word from his assistant Timothy, whom Paul had dispatched to Thessalonica to check on their spiritual well-being. In fact, if you'll just look back at chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, Timothy has just now come to us from you. So Timothy has returned, and what he reports about what he found in Thessalonica is overall positive. Verse 6 again, he, Timothy, has brought good news about your faith and your love. Now this, plus the fact that Paul commends them at the opening of the letter, back in chapter 1 and verse 3, for their labor prompted by love, And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says they're living in a way that pleases God. So all of that taken together tells us why he says, then in verse 9 of chapter 4, we do not need to write to you about your love. They were already a loving church. And they were that because that is what Christians are. It's characteristic of genuine Christians to love. And so I say in the outline... It's characteristic because, first of all, it's our nature. Verse 9 says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Love was characteristic of the divine nature that they now possessed and that we now possess if we belong to Christ. And it, love, is the first of the evidences of having the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then joy, peace, forbearance, and so on. Romans chapter 5 tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's, friends, impossible for genuine, true Christians not to love. And that's why the Apostle John used this word love so often as characteristic of Christians. He did that in his gospel The Gospel of John, he did that in the three letters that he wrote in your New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1st John 3, he said, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So it's characteristic of Christians. It's our very nature. We've been given the, the Holy Spirit. But it also must be, I say in the outline, nurtured. It's our nature. We've been given the Holy Spirit, but it must be nurtured. That is, we do need to be told and commanded regarding what is right. Though we have the Holy Spirit and it's our nature, sin can cause us in our love to wane and to diminish. And as we're going to see, we need to be instructed on how it is we're to love. Not just that we're to love, but how to love. So Paul's instructions in this very letter are ways in which they're being taught by God. Being taught by God by virtue of having the Holy Spirit. They're being taught by God now by his word, the instructions in this letter. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 4, if you look back in verse 2, Paul says that his instructions have the, quote, authority of the Lord Jesus. 
And in verse 8, chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, anyone who rejects his instruction is rejecting God. So what I, Paul, am writing to you has the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. And anyone who rejects what I'm writing is not just rejecting me, but rather is rejecting God. And so he's instructing us here. He's nurturing us in this love that we have by nature, but need to refine and need to be reminded of. This instruction to love each other in verse 9 comes not only from Jesus' present authority through Paul, but also from Jesus' words on the night before he was crucified in what's called the upper room discourse that goes all the way from John chapter 13 through John uh, chapter 17, where he told his disciples three times to love one another. It's there that Jesus gave those famous words, That by this will all men know that you are my followers, that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so it's clear that these Thessalonian Christians had learned the lesson that Jesus taught directly and now was continuing to teach through Paul. They had learned that quite well because verse 10 says this. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now, he says, you've loved all God's family throughout Macedonia. That's because Thessalonica was located in the province of Macedonia. Paul planted churches in other Macedonian towns. Philippi was one of those. And so we have the letter to the Philippians as a result of a church being planted there in Acts chapter 16 and 17, it tells us he planted in Philippi and then in a place called Berea. And Paul's companions in Thessalonica, Silas and Timothy, also ministered in those towns. And just as the Thessalonians had proclaimed their faith to the entire region, according to chapter 1 and verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians, and so they demonstrated the reality of their conversion, so the Thessalonians also demonstrated their sanctification by showing spiritual love toward everybody. Believers all across their region in Macedonia had received their generous hospitality, their acts of mercy, and their sacrificial deeds of service. At the end of verse 10, they are told to continue what they're doing. So you're doing this. You're doing well. It's well known. Continue what you're doing. But then verse 11 tells them how they can and should do it better. With integrity, that is with consistency in different situations. So verse 10 says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And then verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, that word and at the beginning of verse 11 connects what follows with what precedes. And what follows is a corrective to the way they were showing love in the church. So everybody's got it. The Thessalonians are a great bunch. They're a model church. They're showing love to one another. They show this love because it's natural for genuine Christians to do that. They have the Holy Spirit. That's been nurtured. Paul has commanded it. He's commanding it again. That's just following what the Lord Jesus himself had done. They had learned that lesson well. They were loving. But now they needed to be taught how to love better. How to love in a way that had integrity. They clearly do not need to be taught to love, but they do 
now need to be taught how best to love because though love is characteristic of Christians, it can also be, I say in your outline, confusing for Christians. Love is confusing. It's characteristic, but it can be confusing. One commentator has said, as we examine this concept of brotherly love, there are two dangers we have to guard against in the church. One danger is that we do not show love to each other. In other words, we're not looking for opportunities to love our fellow brothers and sisters. This could be simple acts of love like writing letters or making phone calls, or it can be more sacrificial acts of love like buying a meal or helping with issues in the home. We must be reminded to love one another, and we need to be open and honest about some of our struggles so we can fulfill this command. So first of all, one danger is we just don't love the way we ought. I shouldn't skip over that too quickly. The Thessalonians were loving, clearly, but maybe we're not. Maybe some of us are not. Are not. I mean, the very beginning of being able to love one another in the household of God, the very beginning of that is to know one another. So I would say to you, my, my friend, if you are a church attender who does not endeavor to get to know your brothers and sisters, then you are not loving them well. You can't love them if you don't know them. And that's why it's imperative that you involve yourself in the lives of brothers and sisters. That's why we offer opportunities for you to do that. It's not just so that the pastor or the leadership can check off of a scorecard. We had X number of people at our ministries. Those ministries are offered in order for each of us to carry out the objectives that God has given us. You cannot love your brothers and sisters if you don't know them. So if that applies to you, then make application of that and determine you're going to get involved in things like a community group. A community group is designed for that very thing, to help you know people in ways that you simply cannot only on Sunday mornings. So that's the first danger. We just don't love people. We show up, we leave, we don't know people, therefore we can't love them. But the other danger to avoid regarding love is to show too much of it in the wrong way. So we do love, but in the wrong way. Now that might sound surprising, but I think it's exactly what Paul is pointing out to us here. We can go too far with this sense of brotherly love and allow people to be irresponsible. In the name of love, we excuse the behavior of other people. If someone loses a job, it's one thing to help them and get them back on their feet. But if that person seems to be living off the benevolent love the church has shown, then we have to shift gears from love to discipline. John Stott explains it this way. True, it's an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it's also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. We often do not consider that our own work is an expression of love to others because we do not need to be supported by them. That requires wisdom to determine how best to show love in various circumstances. Wisdom takes multiple truths and it harmonizes them into consistent action. So they and we are going to receive instruction now on how to love well those who are in need or those who need to work their way out of their need. And verse 11 says this. Make it your ambition 
to lead a quiet life. Now, quiet is not saying don't speak. It's not talking about being restful. But it means this here. It means do not call attention to yourself. Lead a quiet life, one that does not call attention to yourself. And the Thessalonians had been set an example of this when Paul was with them. I mean, now he's writing to them, but he's not with them. But he was previously with them, established the church in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17 records that for us. And as a result of Paul's ministry there and the converts to Christ that had come to faith because of his ministry there, there was an uproar. There was an uproar among those who were the maker of idol trinkets for idol worship. And they were concerned that they were going to go out of business. And so they uh, started and cited a riot. And they said this about Paul and the Christians. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Think about this. So these guys come and say, you guys are preaching another king. You're preaching allegiance to Jesus rather than Caesar. Now, what would we, as politically active people, say in our mindset today? What would we have done in that situation? Many of us, if we're honest about it, we would have said, "You know what? They can't tell me what they don't tell me what to do. I'm going to get in your face. I've got my rights. Let's let them know who the king really is. Let's start a political action committee. Let's have a platform." Christians need to get loud and proud and get out there and shout it down. He who shouts the loudest apparently is right. If you watch cable news. So what did Paul do? Here's what it says. As soon as it was night, Paul and Silas went away to Berea. Quiet lives. Not unnecessarily calling attention to themselves. No, certainly there were times Paul was persecuted, thrown in jail, ultimately executed for preaching the gospel. But he wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't looking to cause a stir, not calling attention to himself. So Paul chose not to call further attention to himself, and he undoubtedly endured criticism for it. Now, one way to call attention to yourself is to make matters about you unnecessarily. That is, to make people think about you when, in fact, they and you should be thinking about others who are truly in need. So, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, am I somebody who's regularly the object of attention? If that's the case, it may be that you're not pursuing this command to lead a quiet life, one that does not call attention to yourself. And living a quiet life means a couple of things. In verse 11, it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, notice, if you look there, notice there's a colon after the word life. Lead a quiet life, colon. So now it's going to explain what leading a quiet life looks like. And it says, first of all, you should mind your own business. So I say in your outline, love is not meddlesome. Love is not meddlesome. You should mind your own business. Now, what's underlying that? 
Well, apparently in Thessalonica, they had people who were freeloading. They were not pulling their own weight, refusing to work and looking for help from the church. Now, how do we know this? We know this because Paul wrote a second letter to the same church, 2 Thessalonians. And by the time he writes 2 Thessalonians, this is still a problem. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, When we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. But then he goes on, but we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So they're not busy, they're busy bodies. Calling attention to themselves and their needs. And now one result of that is they're meddlesome. People in this situation often become busy bodies. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. And this is one manifestation of that. Living a quiet life, one that does not call attention to itself, means not engaging in the gossip of idleness. And loving those people who are in that situation means not continuing to help them pursue their error. So if we're going to love well, if we're going to love wisely, We don't continue to love in a way that helps people move in this meddlesome, busybody direction. Remember our working definition of love that I've given you many times. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. And so we need to ask ourselves, is it in the best interest of the individual to continue to allow them to do what they're doing? Paul's answer would be no. Love is not meddlesome. So it's not loving on the part of the individual who is failing to lead a quiet life and thus is, has become a busybody and meddlesome. It's not loving for them to inflict that on their brothers and sisters, and it's not loving then for the brothers and sisters to help them continue in that. Love is not meddlesome. It does not help people continue to meddle. And, in your outline, it's not burdensome. It's not meddlesome, and it's not burdensome. Verse 11 again Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. But it also says you lead this quiet life. You're not meddlesome. Mind your own business and work with your own hands. Just as we told you. Now, just as we told you. I've already mentioned that this was a known issue in Thessalonica. In fact, if you'll just look over one chapter in chapter 5, which we'll get to in a few weeks, but in chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are, see it there, idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. It seems clear that there was this group in the Thessalonian church who needed a very different kind of instruction and exhortation. They're identified there in chapter 5 and verse 14 as the idle and disruptive. And Paul says they're to be warned rather than helped. Now in classical Greek, the word that's translated as idle and disruptive was applied to an army in disarray and to undisciplined soldiers who either broke rank instead of marching properly, or they were insubordinate. 
It came then to describe any kind of irregular or undisciplined behavior. But for centuries, people wondered what kind of rebellious group this was which was causing Paul so much anxiety. But discoveries earlier this century in secular papyri dating from the first century, which had been well-preserved in the dry sands of Egypt, showed that that word had developed another meaning. There's an example from the year 66 AD of an apprenticeship contract where a weaver, with a weaver, which a father signed for his son. So this weaver is hiring the son to be his apprentice. The son's father signs the contract with that weaver. And in it, the father pledged that if the boy played truant and he missed any work days, then he would make them up. And the verb for play truant in that letter is the same word as idle and disruptive in chapter 5 and verse 14. So its emphasis is not, first of all, on sloth, but rather on being irresponsible in our attitude toward work. Some had given up their work and they needed to be exhorted to go back to it. And it may have been for good intentions that some of these people were not working. That they were being irresponsible. Now what kind of good intentions could you possibly have for for not working? Well, the next passage that we're going to look at next week, beginning in verse 13, talks about the Lord's return. We're going to look at the rapture that's spoken of there next week. And that is in all likelihood on purpose. It may well be that there were some in Thessalonica who were not working because the Lord was returning. So the Lord's returning, so... Why should we make all this fuss? Let's just be about the Lord's, the Lord's business. So it may have been even for spiritual reasons that some of these people were irresponsible. You see the same idea of the Lord's expected soon return affecting the way people behave back in Acts chapter 6. You remember the story in Acts chapter 6 that a dispute arose in the first church there at Jerusalem. Because the Grecian widows said that they were not being treated the same way in the distribution of benevolence as the Hebraic widows. Well, these Grecian widows were people who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they were Grecian as opposed to Hebraic because they didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't live in the environs around Jerusalem. They didn't even speak the same same dialect. They were from outside But by the time of Acts chapter 6, they were still there in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had stayed. Why did they stay in Jerusalem? Because Jesus had said, this is where I'm going to return to. So here they are. They stayed in Jerusalem. They believe the Lord's going to return any day. Why bother going home? And so the church needed to help those who were there. I can give you an illustration of this from my own life. How the expectation that the Lord's going to come tomorrow or next week or next month affects your behavior. When I was in high school, I used this as a reason to throw in the towel on schoolwork. That's the truth. In my Pentecostal church, where my dad was a pastor and then later his brother, my uncle, they so emphasized prophecy that it scared me to death. And the way they preached it, it was clear to me that any time next week, the Lord's coming back. And so I so had that on the brain that I kind of threw away my schoolwork. It had the added added advantage of not having to do homework. 
And I got called into my school counselor's office. What's going on with your grades? Jesus is coming back. Why worry with it? That's what I told her. Now, whatever the reasons for the lack of work, it's contrary to God's design and it cannot be indulged. The impulse to love must be carried out without helping indulge in this kind of behavior. Now, let's be clear. This is about those who cannot work, either because they're unable physically or mentally or they cannot find work. Those who cannot work, unable physically or mentally or they can't find work, are to be the objects of our help. Our love is to be shown to them in ways that help them with a hand up and even a hand out. But for those who will not work, Paul says they should not eat. So love is characteristic of Christians, but it can be confusing for Christians. And if our love is going to have integrity, then we must apply the principle of doing what's best for the other to all circumstances. Thirdly, love is constructive for Christians. Verse 12, do all of this. Lead this quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Do all of this so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You see, living a quiet life accomplishes this. Living a life that doesn't call unnecessarily attention to yourself wins the respect of outsiders. Paul said something similar in 1 Timothy 2. Live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So our behavior and the quietness of that behavior, not calling attention to ourselves in unnecessary ways, has effects, good effects, on those outside the faith. And friends, we should use this principle with a lot of things, including deciding how to vote, And how vocal to be about the one for whom you voted. You see, don't call attention to things that are going to cast potential cast aspersions on Christ. And upon the message of Christ. You align yourself too closely to a candidate. And to a candidate who embodies everything that's contrary to what we believe. How's that going to help the cause of Christ? There are many, many unbelievers today who despise the name evangelical. In part because of this very thing. Living quiet lives means don't unnecessarily call attention to yourselves so that we can have good effect toward outsiders. Similar instruction was given by Peter to wives who have unbelieving husbands. First Peter 3, wives, if any of your husbands do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by your behavior. The unfading beauty, notice of a gentle and quiet spirit that doesn't unnecessarily call attention to itself. So ladies and gentlemen, all of us in our various situations, if we are calling attention to ourselves, it then detracts from what we're really supposed to be about in these relationships. And certainly with unbelievers, it's to be about seeing them come to Jesus. And then lastly in verse 12, this will have a good effect on unbelievers. Last line, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So living a quiet life achieves the first so that we'll have a good effect on unbelievers. 
and win their respect. And living a non-meddlesome and non-burdensome life has this effect. You're not dependent on anybody and thereby you're loving those in your fellowship. So here's your take-home truth. Christians must learn to practice discerning love. Practice love, but it's a love that's discriminating, discerning, has integrity in the various circumstances to which God calls us. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for giving us this instruction in your word. Lord, you are love. You've shown your love. And we are people who by nature love because we have the divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is producing his fruit in us, first of which is love. So, Lord, we love by nature, but we need to be reminded and nurtured in that and instructed in that. And, Lord, we need wisdom to love in ways that have integrity, that's carried out in wisdom, that is applied in a discerning manner. Lord, each of us here are in varying circumstances, and we have people that you have put in our spheres of influence that you have called us to love. Oh, Lord, help us to do that in a way that reflects the wisdom of the principles given in your word. And may your character be seen in the way we love as a result, and thus you be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.